Welcome to Girls Lead Podcast, where we lead the focus on female history. We are your hosts, and every other Thursday, we will have a new person and new stories to talk about. If you have a story you would like to share and are interested in being featured, please direct message our Instagram account, at Girls Lead Podcast. This week, we will be talking about the history of trans-exclusionary radical feminists, also known as TERFs, and later Lillian will be conducting an interview with the trans girl era lesbian. Keep in mind, there is no intended hate, and this is completely educational. The letters LGBTQ+, often appear together, but the people the letters represent are not always united. And now, decades-old animosity between transgender activists and radical lesbian feminists who have conflicting views on gender has reached a boiling point on social media and in real life. A point of contention is lesbian erasure, an idea that lesbians are systematically erased and ignored within male-dominated LGBTQ activism and mainstream media. And a belief like transgender activism, which aims to protect the rights of a small and highly marginalized group, allegedly harms women, and lesbians in particular. The origins of the acronym TERFs are rooted in 1970s feminist philosophy. At the time, radical feminist circles asserted these needed to be a word to separate feminists who were supported trans women and those who did not because many feminist groups call for creating separate spaces from men for women to exist and organize in. Radical feminist circles debated whether or not to include transgender women. The feminists who are against inclusion of transgender women into women's organizing spaces call themselves gender critical feminists, a word that continues to be used today. These early gender-critical feminists were serious about keeping transgender women and non-binary people assigned male at birth out of these women's spaces and even threatened violence against trans people on multiple occasions. First recorded in 2008 as an online term, the TERFs was used to describe a minority of feminists who believe viewpoints that other feminists consider transphobic. The Michigan Women Music Festival, which was held every August from 1976 until 2015, acts and only women-born women attend. In 1991, trans woman Nancy Burkholder was told to leave the festival after someone recognized that she was not cisgender. Trans-exclusive cisgender radical feminist blogger Viv Smith has been credited with having coined the term TERF, Due to a blog post she wrote reacting to the Michigan Women's Music Festival policy of denying admittance to trans women. However, as the term became more and more visible, some women who had been described as TERFs had felt the term had become a misogynistic slur that is used against women rather than a descriptor. Smith responded to the idea that TERF is an intentional negative label during an interview with a trans advocate by explaining that feminist and radical feminist have been both used as slurs as well. Though, many who choose to self-identify with these terms, Smith makes a point to clarify that the conception of the term was not to say that all radical feminists are trans-exclusionary, but a subset are. Those who may be described as TERFs sometimes prefer to be called gender-critical. She wrote that she rejected the alignment of all radical feminists with trans-exclusionary radfem activists. In 2014 interview with trans advocate Smith said, 
It was meant to deliberately, technically neutral description of an activist grouping. We wanted a way to distinguish TERF from other red femmes with whom we engaged who were trans. Positive slash neutral because we had several years of history engaging productivity, sustainability with non-TERF red femmes. While Smith intentionally used TERF to refer to a particular type of feminist whom she characterized as unwilling to recognize trans women as sisters. She was noted that the term had taken additional connotations and said that it has been weaponized at times. By both exclusionary and exclusionary groups, though contested, the term has since become an established part of contemporary feminist speech. In an interview with Guardian, Smith goes on to say, I still believe people retain rights generally to set their personal boundaries individually and in groups. I, for example, avoid being in company with proudly public misogynists, but crucially, I do not assume that every man I meet is in silent sympathy with them either. I would expect to be described as unfairly harsh if I did so. And this is where these holding exclusionary stances sometimes seem to want them possible. To not be criticized when taking judgment stances, especially when some of those stances involve not just social exclusion, but the denial of civil rights. Which brings me to one of the common turf arguments. What about social slash sexual predators who have pretended to be trans in order to exploit the trust of others by subverting novel gender recognition processes? It would be naive for it to think that it was never attempted. Although the processes are far tighter than those might have believed. But ultimately, arguments based on theoretical of hypothetical predatory individuals do not strike me as anywhere near good enough to reason to exclude every trans woman from the circle of trifemist feminist trust, in particular so long as organizations have clearly publicized code of conduct focused on anti-harassment, robustly enforced. Then anyone who breaches the code can be expelled based on reported and investigated actions, not just fears. This is ultimately the standard I believe most of us want, safer spaces for everyone who respects the dignity of others, and any rejections of association being based on documented infrastructures rather than generalized assumptions about differing bodies. In 1979, radical feminist Janice Raymond published The Transsexual Empire, The Making of the Shemale, where she argued that transsexualism reinforced gender stereotypes and that trans women did not belong in the feminist movement. A year after publishing The Transsexual Empire, Raymond authored a report for the Reagan administration that called for legislation that limited medical and surgical treatment for trans people. These sediments have a long-lasting impact on transgender healthcare in the U.S. insurance companies that refused to cover gender-affirming healthcare for decades, and many primary care physicians were unwilling to provide a medical also prescribed for menopause to transgender and non-binary patients because medical guidelines had not been changed to include them. That changed in recent years, and both insurance companies and now Medicaid cover gender-affirming care. Until 2017, gender identity disorder was characterized as a mental disorder in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And it wasn't until 2018 that the World Health Organization removed transsexualism, the international classification of diseases, a move that would allow for better access to necessary health 
and Preventions. Radical feminist Kathy Brennan and Elizabeth Hungerford wrote a letter to the United Nations in 2011 advocating members to oppose laws prohibiting discrimination based on gender identity and gender expression. Though social media platforms can amplify the voices of marginalized people, unfortunately, it can be used against them. Many turfs continue to advocate against rights for transgender and non-binary people on social media platforms such as Twitter, even targeting individuals and their families with threats and harassment. In 2013, for instance, Brennan sent a letter to trans activist Emily Horseman's doctor stating that Horseman was harassing her online before publishing the doctor's name on Twitter. Since the beginning, there has been oppression to the word. British communist Sarah Didham wrote in 2017 that the bar to being called a turf is remarkably low. Some self-described gender-critical feminists say that they cannot accurately be described as trans-exclusionary because they are inclusive to trans men. Often, these feminists gender trans men as women, writing for socialist worker American feminist Danielle Wadler and Corey Westing say that this position is divisive and contradictory and that it represents trans misogynistic ideology. In 2015, American feminist scholar Bonnie J. Morris argued that TERF was initially a legitimate analytical term but quickly developed into a defamatory word associated with sexist insults. She described the word as emblematic of the unresolved tensions between our LGBT communities, L's and T factions, and called on scholars and journalists to stop using it. British journalist Catherine Bennett was described the word as a bullying tool, which had already succeeded in repressing speech and maybe even research. British feminist author Claire Hushun argues that the word is often alongside violent rhetoric. She adds that the language of this type is used to dehumanize women, often lesbians. British clinical psychologist and medical sociologist David Pilgrim argues that phrases such as kill a turf or punch a turf are also posted by trolls online and there have been other depictions of violence aimed at women labeled as turfs. The 2018 UK all-party parliamentary group on hate crime received several submissions that indicated a high degree of tensions between trans activists and feminist groups opposed to transgender rights legislation. With both sides detailing incidents of extreme or abusive language, the report noted that some women had submitted reports which argued that women who object to the inclusion of trans women as female are being attacked both online and in the street, with the term trans-exclusionary radical feminist or TERF being used as a term of abuse. The people at whom the word TERF is directed against characterized is as a slur or hate speech. In July 2018, solid of essays regarding transgender identities, British magazine Economic required writers to avoid all slurs, including TERF, stating that the word is used to try to silence opinions and sometimes incite violence. Transgender rights activist and philosophy of language professor Rachel McKinnon has called the idea that the word is a slur is absurd, saying that just because a word can be used towards women does not mean it is a slur in general. In a 2020 paper published by the philosophy journal, linguistics Christopher Davis and Ellen McGreedy argued that three properties make the term a slur. One, it must be a derogatory towards a particular group. Two, it must be used to subordinate them within structure of power relations. And three, the group must be defined as an intrinsic property. Davis and McGreedy wrote that the term turf satisfies the first condition, fails the third, and the second is contentious. 
and it depends on how each group sees itself in relation to the other group. Author Andrea Longchu describes the claim that tariff is a slur as a grievance that would benefit contempt if it weren't so true, in the sense that all bywords for bigots are intended to be defamatory. Feminist philosopher Tila May Betcher argues that regardless of whether the term is accurately classified as a slur, quote-unquote, has at least become offensive to those designated by the term, end of quote, which suggests it might be best to avoid it in case one wants to have a conversation across deep difference. Similar to describing turf as a slur, some gender-critical people also claim that the term cis is also a slur. The woman who became famous by penning a fantastical world that shaped the childhoods of people across the globe, J.K. Rowling tweeted out a statement with the caption, Turf Wars. The statement came after J.K. Rowling caught heat for tweeting transphobic remarks over the weekend including mocking the phrase people who menstruate and saying that trans activism is harming women. In particular, Rowling took issue with being labeled as TERF or trans exclusionary radical feminist. However, many people use the term to say those who label TERF make transphobic statements, claim transgender women don't belong in women's spaces, and imply that acknowledging the existence of transgender people harms women's rights. Remember Janice Raymond? who pushed the existence of transgender women should be morally mandated out of existence by cutting off healthcare? Well, according to Insider, Rowling made a similar point as Raymond in her statement. She cited the growing problem of people detransitioning after going on HRT as a reason to limit access to gender-affirming care to transgender youth. Care which has not been proven to lower rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide in transgender teens. The reason many gender-critical feminists exclude transgender women from their feminism is the same reason many also make room for transgender men in women's spaces. Many gender-critical feminists do not view transgender men as real men, or transgender women as real women. Rowling's focus on biological sex extends her to her logic for including transgender men in women's spaces. Ironically, radical feminists make trans men in their feminism because they were born women. She wrote that in her statement. But to say trans men belong in women's spaces undermines their identity and implies they are not real men. Saying transgender people were born as the gender they were assigned at birth also mistakenly implies trans people need to transition. Gender affirming medical procedures. To be the gender they identify as, in a scenario taking back to 2013, a woman named Amy Steffens had been working in funeral service for 20 years, nearly six of which Harris Funeral Homes, which she came to her boss as transgender. She had known that since she was five years old, that she was a girl that had been living as a woman inside of work for some time. Though she left her job at Harris, when she worked her way up from apprentice to funeral director, she felt she had to hide who she was there until she couldn't any longer. She gave the funeral home's director, Thomas Roast, a note that she shared with friends and colleagues. I realize that some of you may have trouble understanding this. In truth, I have to live with you every day, and I do not fully understand it myself, she wrote. As distressing as this is to assure to be my friends and some of my family, I need to do this for myself and my own peace of mind and to end the agony in my soul. And he read the note. Roast simply said, okay. Stephens was fired two weeks later. Roast told her that it was not going to work out. Stephens sued, claiming her dismissal was discrimination on the basis of her sex, setting off a flurry of legal activity. 
According to court documents, Ross testified he fired Stephens because she was no longer going to represent herself as a man. She wanted to dress as a woman. Last March, a few years ago, the Sixth Circuit Court Appeals ruled her favor. It is analytically impossible to fire an employee that is based on employee status as a transgender person without being motivated, at least in part, by the employee's sex. The court said in its decision, an employee cannot discriminate on the basis of transgender status without imposing a stereotypical notions of how sexual organs and gender identity ought to align. Harris Funeral Home appealed to the Supreme Court, which took up the case and we hear oral arguments on October 8th. Even President Trump's Department of Justice filed a brief in August arguing that a part of Stephens was fired by Harris Funeral Homes. Not for her gender identity, but she refused to know her employee's dress code, which requires men, and by men, the DOJ men of biological sex, to wear a suit with pants and to women a dress or skirt. The ACLU attorneys representing Stephens in turn argued that their client was fired because Stephens failed to perform her sex role her employee expected of her, violating the legal precedent established in 1989 in Hopkins. In that case, Ann Hopkins was denied promotions and a partnership because she did not look, dress, or behave in a stereotypically feminine enough manner. Her bosses instructed her to wear more makeup and skirts to work in order to get the promotion. The court sided with Hopkins, establishing a legal standard for sex, stereotyping that this that has fundamentally transformed the workplace for women in the past 30 years. Now, the precedent for being put to the test and joining the Trump administration and conservatives in the fight over sex-based discrimination and stereotypes are several somewhat unexpected allies, so-called radical feminist groups, with long records of opposing the rights of transgender people. In their brief to the Supreme Court, the Women Liberation Front, WOLF, writes, Simply, Amy Stephens is a man. He wanted to wear a skirt while at work. And his gender identity argument is an ideology that dictates that people who wear skirts must be worn, precisely the type of sex stereotyping forbidden by Price Waterhouse. Groups like WOLF are commonly referred to trans-exclusionary radical feminists. They alternate among several theories that all claim that trans women are really men, who are the ultimately oppressors of women. Most of their ideas, like that trans women, are a threat to cisgender women safely, are based on cherry-picked cases of horrific behavior by a small number of trans people. All above else, their ideology doesn't allow for trans people to have self-definition or autonomy over their gender expression. Sex is grounded in materially where gender identity is simply an ideology that has no grounding in science. WOLF told Vox in a statement, The redefinition of the word sex is to mean gender identity would have in my read harmful effects on women and girls as a distinct category deserves civil rights protections. The key to understanding why a self-proclaimed radical feminist group would side with conservatives arguing for the right to force cisgender women into skirts at work is to understand who TERFs are and what they've been up to for the past 50 years. Because now, the Trump administration and a conservative majority Supreme Court, their alliance with these far-right groups could have lasting widespread consequences for trans civil rights and for the rights of women in general. 
Scenarios like these are one of the many that happen to our fellow transgender friends. They are people too and have lots of great things to offer the world. That's just something you have to remember and keep in mind and have this opinion or form an opinion on the concept of TERFs and this is where we were at today. It is not a happy ever after, but the US is never like that with different opinions that often cause conflict. That's a wrap for the history of Portia now. Let's turn to Casual Convos with Lillian. I'm Lillian and I'm the host of Casual Convos, our interview segment. This episode's convo is with Izzy, a lesbian arrow trans girl going into her junior year of high school. Her pronouns are she, her, and she's the head of the GSA at her high school and the Rainbow Alliance at her church. She also runs the Modern Musical Origins and the Siblings and Fandoms podcasts. Thanks so much for joining me, Izzy. You're very welcome. I almost forgot how words worked. Nice to be here. Thanks so much again. I'm going to start off by asking you about your self-discovery. What made you realize you were queer? So in like May, April, May of 2018 or so, I discovered a YouTube channel called Council of Geeks. And it is a like channel about all sorts of geeky stuff that is hosted by Nathaniel Wayne, who is a gender fluid uh, person who also goes by Vera and uses she, they pronouns. That was sort of my first introduction to gender nonconformity in any significant way in terms of like labels and terms. And I identified as non-binary for like a year and a half. And at some point in like summer of 2020, I realized I trans. As far as the lesbian bit goes, just sort of playing around with it, um, figuring out what was like, oh, I'm supposed to like men now. Uh, figuring out what was just aesthetic attraction and what was actual like sexual attraction. Uh, and just sort of landed on lesbian as the best option. It's the label. The thing about labels is that they are fluid because the language is fluid and that's how it works. But the goal with a label is to describe yourself as accurately as possible. No label is going to get the entirety of who you are, but they are descriptive. They are not prescriptive. They do not prescribe your identity. They describe it. So pick the one that makes you the most comfortable. And for me, that is lesbian. Aromantic. Um, I tried dating people. It hurt everyone involved a lot because I was trying to fake feelings that weren't there. And I just didn't have a word for that until quite recently. I really liked how you said that labels shouldn't prescribe how you identify and said they should be maybe a loose description. Uh, yeah, I forget because- who first said that but I heard it from someone and I have stolen it now. Yeah, that's such a good quote. And I definitely think that online is a lot of the ways that queer youth have found out that they are queer because you're exposed to different <laughs> populations than you are. I personally yeah. do not identify as queer, but I've seen like online, especially there are many different communities for everyone. So there is that definitely- side to that. Yeah. Um, uh, there's also another side to the online ballad. Like, if your identity isn't harming anyone, just let people exist. That's my, like, main point as far as discourse on identities goes. If it's not harming anyone, let it be. Yeah, definitely. So on to the next question. Since you've come out, have you experienced any queer phobia? I have been called slurs twice, which I think is pretty well. 
And then just like a whole, a whole, a whole bunch of transphobic lesbians. Just so many. There are so many of them. But no, yeah, I have. It's fine. I, at least for me, like you learn to stop caring what people think because you kind of have to. Kind of have to or you won't survive. And that really sucks. As a second point to that, where was I going? There was somewhere I was going. Oh, um, allies, listen. I know you want to help us. I know you want to understand. I know you don't understand. It's okay that you don't understand. And you're not going to understand. Bigotry is not rational. It never has been and it never will be. And you can't really understand something that isn't rational without being directly involved with it in some way. Support, yes, good. But like... You don't need to understand what we're going through to support us. You just need to accept it and do your best to prevent it. Thank you so much for that statement, Izzy. So this kind of relates to what you were talking about with this question, but it's how has any of the queer phobia you experienced come from inside of one of the LGBTQIA plus communities you belong to? So I don't know if you know this, but there is a organization in the United Kingdom called the LGB Alliance. Um, it is a group of queer people of lesbians, gays, and bisexuals that specifically excludes trans people. They play into a lot of the rhetoric that surrounds TERFs, uh, trans exclusionary radical feminists, and they're just like overall, um, God, what's the word? And that transphobia carries over a lot, particularly, at least in like the circles I've been in, in the lesbian community more than anything else. The idea that you are not a real woman because you have a penis is really pervasive. And there are a lot of people who just won't go near you because of that. And who will call you a fake lesbian. And it's exhausting. And then add on to that being aromantic. Uh, yes, I believe I have heard of the LGB Alliance, which is what you called yeah. it. Uh, vaguely, I've seen, it, I've seen mentions of it online. I didn't really know exactly what it was, but I did know it was trans exclusionary yeah the uk for some reason this is like the one thing that the u.s is slightly ever so slightly less shitty about the uk has a giant turf problem i mean it has jk rowling yeah but like even independently from her yeah like it's obviously empowered by her but something about the climate over there just makes that a lot more acceptable so the next question one question that you specifically wanted to talk about Coming out can drastically change your relationships. How have you experienced community and friendship since coming out? So keep in mind, in 2020, a thing happened. There was a global pandemic. I came out in June of 2020, three months into said pandemic. So my answer to this is probably different from a lot of people's, because I have had a very different experience with community. I was operating like in queer circles before, and like that community is for the most part great, at least the ones that I chose to participate in. I'm not, I'm not going to touch on that so much. I want to talk more about how straight people and like people at school in real life, whatever, perceived me, particularly for the lens of social media. Like when I posted on Instagram, the comments became less like lackluster, I guess. Like you see the difference in comments on posts between girls and boys posts. And that's a separate thing to address, but it is there, that barrier. And at some point, that barrier was crossed. And I don't know when. Like, I can't pinpoint when, but it has drastically changed 
my relationships, like there are things that are talked about between genders that just aren't talked about cross genders, even like non-binary. And there's also like a bit of thing when you're non-binary that people, or when you're outwardly identifying as non-binary, where people sort of still see you as your birth gender, unless you give them androgyny, which no non-binary person owes you androgyny, no trans mask person owes you masculinity, no trans femme person owes you femininity. So yeah, that was an answer, I think. It changed. Um, I'm happier. Really great, Izzy. I'm so glad that becoming your true self made you feel happier because no one should feel like they're not who they are. And I hope uh, in the future you'll find even more accepting people that will see you as the woman that you truly are. We'll see. In the introduction, I mentioned you run multiple queer-focused organizations. What is that like? So I run the, or ran this past year, the LGBTQ plus club at our school. And that was very chill, actually. The way I ended up running it uh, with my friend was I was the one who reached out to the sponsor and was like, hey, is this happening this year? And he basically responded with like, yes, it is. You're in charge. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, And for the most part, that's been fun. We've made it sort of just like a, a hangout for queer people. Occasionally someone showed up and was like, hey, can you educate me? And we were like, sure, because both me and the other person running it enjoy education and have the energy for that. Not every queer person does. Not every minority is required to educate you. Actually, none of them are. So that's been fun. There was one one thing that happened um, <laughs> when I first announced the club as like being a thing. There was this Christian savior, self-appointed Christian savior, who replied with a very, very long email to be like, hey, just so you know, Jesus is real and he loves you and repent. So that was fun. Not going to say who that was because enough has happened there already. But that, that, that was the one like major, major pushback. Other than that, everyone's been chill. It's fine. Worth noting that we do live in the D.C. area, which is a fairly liberal place. We're talking about church. So I go to a Unitarian Universalist church. Which, if there are denominations, nope. There are congregations that are a lot more Christian than the one I go to. So I have been told there are seven principles that you can Google if you want. Um, there are bunch of famous UUs throughout history. It's a pretty new church. It is technically a denomination of Christianity, but rarely is that really brought up, at least at my church. And there is a bunch of different committees at church. Uh, Four of them are social justice focused. There is a defending democracy group. There is a green sanctuary group. There is a racial justice task force. And there is a Rainbow Alliance, which I am the co-chair of, along with two other students. Uh, And that's fun. We do a lot of things. We host monthly movie nights during the year. We run safe space meetings. We run committee meetings. We put on two services every year. We are required to observe six days of recognition every year in order to maintain and renew our status as a welcoming congregation. We are also required to have two services a year and I think like one or two workshops of some form. So we do that. It's uh, a lot of time, a lot of work, but it is very fun and fulfilling. And I like most of the people I get to work with on that. That's super awesome. It's really nice that you've created safe spaces and places that help create change. So we have a very recent question 
some current news. 30 minutes old. Yeah, it's like, it's like really recent, isn't it? So recently, the Supreme Court, for anyone who doesn't know, has reaffirmed trans students' rights to use the bathroom that aligns with their gender identity. How does that make you feel? Uh, good. It's, it's a right that was already in place, more or less, I believe. I suppose that's a like basic, basic human thing. Uh, the school district that we're in actually passed guidelines as to how teachers and staff should treat trans students. And I was impressed. I was incredibly impressed with this. many good things in there. Optimistic about that, at least in certain parts of the country. And I think that on the whole, I hope culture is sort of tending more liberal and thus more accepting for the most part. Yes, it's kind of crazy that something that is such a basic human right has been denied for such a long time just because... Not even the only one. Yeah, so many different rights have been denied over the years for various different underrepresented and discriminated against groups. It's worth noting we are recording this on what was the second day of the Stonewall riots. So yeah, uh, Pride started as a riot. That's just worth noting while we're talking about queer issues. Yeah, very worth noting. It's just very crazy that the right to simply pee in a bathroom that respects your gender identity is so contested simply because some people are bigoted and feel that they should intrude on where others do their business. Welcome to America. Yeah, it's definitely a very... Land of the free. (laughs) Yeah, land of the free, except you're LGBT or POC. Or disabled. Uh, disabled people can't earn more than $2,000 in assets if they want to keep disability aid. That's horrible. Not sure why there's a cap on it, nor am I sure why that cap hasn't been raised in like 50 years. Yeah, having a lot of assets doesn't necessarily make you less disabled. Exactly. Um, also, when you consider that like a lot of mobility aids cost upwards of $3,000. Yeah, they're expensive. It just doesn't work. As a final question, what advice would you give to other queer youth stay strong you're valid ignore haters literally just ignore them they're not worth your time unless you enjoy arguing with them i enjoy arguing with them it's fun because you can poke little holes in their argument you can just keep asking them why and then eventually it gets down to some baseline ridiculous thing that they didn't even realize they held and it's amazing uh (laughs) But no, ignore the haters. Um, Pride started as a riot. Remember that. Uh, I'm not saying to riot, but Pride did start as a riot. Haters don't deserve your time. If those haters are your parents, I'm very sorry. Biological family is not worth your mental health. Definitely. Thank you so much for joining me, Izzy. Once again, this is Casual Convos, and I'm the host, Lillian, and I am signing out. Pleasure to be here. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you for listening. If you have an interesting story and would want to share, please private message us at Girls Lead Podcasts on Instagram. Special thanks for Izzy and our social media director. Make sure to follow us on Instagram to view updates and potential episodes. See you the Thursday after next Thursday. We encourage all listeners to do independent research on the events mentioned. Thank you.